was doing some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and I, my wife wants some vegetables for Trudet Day, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks, not a ton of broccoli there. Yeah, I think we're rolling. Heidi's Heidi's not snoring, so we're good. We can roll. Ladies and gentlemen and gender non-binary folks worldwide, welcome back to Appod Latcha. I'm Chuck Korn. I'm joined as always directly in front of me and 311 miles away, the venerable Callie Pruitt. We've got a great show for you today. We check in with Dr. Oz and his campaign for Senate and list our top seven of the cringiest, quackiest things he's ever said. Tough list. We've got an interview with Ohio Federation of Teachers President Melissa Cropper about the harmful laws passed that are hurting teachers and students and how they're going to be coming to the rest of the region in the country. And finally, on our Under the Radar segment, you won't want to miss it. It's about J.D. Vance's sham opioid nonprofit and its connections to Big Pharma. Shocker. But first, a few plugs. We were trying to grow our YouTube page. It would really help us out if you subscribed at youtube.com slash appodlatcha. We post a video of this show every week, or at least we try to as much as we can. We get a little behind sometimes. Second, we'd love it if you helped us out by leaving our five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, and you leave a written one and DM us, we will send you some free merch. We've got some new stuff coming soon, so it'll be cool. Finally, we're finishing up a complete rebrand, but in the meantime, we've uploaded a new design to our Public store. It's really great it's from the incredible liz pavlovich you should check it out and get you some it's dope it's straight dope speaking of liz pavlovich a connoisseur of all things mothman you uh you had a mothman experience recently yeah i i'm really excited it sounds like you actually saw him i didn't mean it like that uh i i wish um that would be fabulous and we would have a whole episode about it but um <sighs> So I live in the content. It would be amazing. It would be so amazing. My phone is always ready. Mothman. If you want to come out of the shadows and if you want to creep on me, let's do it. Um, So I live in Charleston, West Virginia. One of the best things about living in Charleston is that they have this great minor league baseball team. um, The Charleston Dirty Birds, which let me just explain the, the Dirty Birds logo. So it's literally a little canary. And he's got like a, uh, a watch light on his helmet and he's like operating some machinery. So he's literally like a canary in a coal mine and they're the Charleston Dirty Birds. It's just so cute. Um, it's pretty if you cute haven't, logo. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's a very cute logo. So they have these promotional nights like most minor league baseball teams. And this past week, they had Mothman Night at Appalachian Power Park. And... Every player on the team had a jersey that said the Mothmen, and they played as the Mothmen. It was fabulous. It was so fun. There were so many people there. I saw a ton of Pavlovich merch, of course. Um, People were wearing Mothman t-shirts. People were, you know, all into, like, the, the spirit of the evening, and it was just so fun. Highly recommend if you if they ever have another Mothman night. It was uh, it was great. I'm jealous, first of all, because I love minor league baseball. I like it honestly more than major league baseball. I know controversial take hit me up, but we just recently moved to Fredericksburg, Virginia, and they have a minor league team. We haven't been to a game yet. I kind of want to go. But here's the disappointing part. Minor league baseball teams have the greatest names for mascots in the history of mascots. You just mentioned the Dirty Birds. You've got the Savannah Bananas. You've got the Rocket City Trash Pandas. You've got the the Montgomery Biscuits. Great fucking names. What do they name the one in Fredericksburg? What do they name them, Callie? Do you want to take a guess? Oh, boy. 
maybe something to do with the Civil War because it's Fredericksburg. That would the rebels almost be on brand, but no, and and that would be you know I mean it's not racially tinged at least I don't think. Okay, uh, okay. What is it? They are the Fred Nats, which is short for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Which, if you will recall, the professional baseball team for Washington D.C. is the, the Nationals. The Nationals. So is what is the what is the mascot for the Nats? I. I don't know. I'm just very disappointed yeah. because it's kind of like, I think Daytona Beach did something like this. They were the Daytona Beach Cubs, which is at least cute, but it was, you know, the Chicago Cubs, and they have now changed the Tortugas. It's pretty dope. But it's like... Oh, man, I love the Tortugas. Same wavelength. I'm with you. And it just pisses me off. It's like, yeah. you have the chance to do something so great. Why would you just copy a team? Yet the Trash Pandas, incredible. You could name them the Mothmen. Yeah, I and it would be great. It would be great. I, you know, I, it really is a lost opportunity because there's so many options when it comes to a minor league team. Um, there, they just have a lot more leeway with creativity I'm for being absolutely unhinged. I'm just a really big fan of like the hometown kind of feeling. So at the at the games, they have they hired this guy who was a mega fan. And he's on staff for the the Dirty Birds now. And he comes to every single game that's at home. This guy, as as a fan, before he was employed, would bring a toaster to the game, make toast, and he would throw it out to other fans and get everybody to chant, you are toast, you are toast, when when they had two strikes. Because it was like they were one strike away from being out. So they would say, like, you're toast. And so this guy's now on staff for the Dirty Birds. Get, sits behind home plate every single time. And gets the crowd going, say, screaming, you are toast. It's fabulous. Hometown. Like, where else would that happen? I just, first of all, I love the enthusiasm. You, you don't see that everywhere. I love that this guy bought, apparently, presumably, I'm assuming, bought tickets to where he could be close to an outlet, I'm guessing, and then right. bring a toaster rather than bring the logistics alone. Right. Yeah. I mean, he deserves to be paid. I mean, he didn't. He could have just brought toast with him, but no. I mean, I feel like he wants it fresh, which I, you know, I appreciate that. Um, and it yeah. feeds birds, so that's also good. Uh, I will just say, I think to put a button on this, I am very jealous. I wish that 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 our local team was like yours. I think that I'm probably going to start a change.org petition to change the name of the Fred Nats to, I want to say Sheep Squatches. I don't know. I think it should be a cryptid. I love that. We need a cryptid team. It's It has to happen at some point. The dam is going to break. I'm fucking shocked it has Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that, and no, I believe that you will make change, Chuck. Change starts at the grassroots, folks, and that's right here on this show. And speaking of grassroots, we talk a lot about bootstraps on this show, Mm -hmm. Callie, and people that have them. And a guy that comes to mind as someone who has bootstraps pulls himself up by the bootstraps is is none other than Dr. Maymat Oz. Um, these bootstraps, by the way, are probably made of the finest leather from an Italian shoemaker, but bootstraps nonetheless. Dr. Oz, okay, we, we've got this great list of his top seven blunders 
really, I wouldn't even call them blunders because blunders almost makes it sound like they weren't nefarious. They were by accident. Many of these were not. We've got the top seven, but first, I wanted to get your reaction. I don't know that we've actually talked about this before. What What did you think when you first found out that Dr. Oz was running for the United States Senate and the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? Oh, my gosh. I thought this man is having a three-quarters life crisis. <laughs> I mean, I really did. Like, it's it's a relentless chase for stardom. I mean, I really think that he's motivated by his own celebrity. And so that was my initial thought was like, okay, this guy has been on television for a real long time. He's now not so much on television and he wants to be on television again. <laughs> and I mean. so many, so many of these people now want to go into politics because politics has like been turned into this form of entertainment and if like obviously we have this it's politics as reality tv oh, and so yeah. he saw his he saw his opening and he was like i shan't go quietly into the dark night <laughs> and he said okay uh now i'm running for senate right and that's very very dangerous and and you know he's down in the polls but we say this all the time Twitter, number one, is not real life. He gets donked on. I almost said, you know I'm going to say? He gets donked on on Twitter (laughs) all the time. Twitter's not real life, and polls are often overstated. And in an environment where Republicans are heavily favored in the fall, this fall, don't take anything for chance if you're a Pennsylvania voter. Get out there and vote and bring other people out with you to vote for John Fetterman. This is not a done deal in this race at all. And same with J.D. Vance and Sherry Beasley and all the other candidates. But... The thing about Dr. Oz that's so fun is that he is a terrible candidate, and we've touched on this before. We've got a list of top seven biggest blunders, dumbest things he's said on and off the campaign trail. Callie, this is a blast. Are you ready? You want to kick us off, actually? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I am. Uh, this is this is the kind of list that I was made for. Um, yep. And this is the kind of list our show is made for. Diving in. All right. So n- coming in. At number seven, his show was totally woo-woo. This guy is a quack doctor. And so here's a, a, a sub list of some of the most insane things that he said on his show. Name them off. So he has had several psychics on his show who claim to communicate with the dead. Kind of fun. He said that those psychics changed his life. Um, and he said that science has not caught up with psychics. So, Wow. That's pretty woo-woo right there. Psychics are fun. Don't promote them as medicine. Yeah, please. So he also repeatedly claimed that raspberry ketones are the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Just scientifically inaccurate. Just a crazy thing to say for a doctor. Okay. This okay. man This man is a doctor. We have to keep this in mind, and he's spreading this. He also said that astrological signs may reveal a great deal about our health. Okay. No, no, thank you. Well, uh, wait, um, and the push last back, thing... push back. Uh, disagree, hard disagree. Tell me why. Cancer. <laughs> I don't understand the joke. One of the astrological signs is cancer. Oh. Many people born under the sign of cancer have had cancer. Got to be okay. fair to Dr. Oz here. Okay, all right, all right. I see your correlation. Um, and I, I, I raise you lavender soap. So Dr. Oz recommended using lavender soap to cure leg cramps. Sure. Why not? Um, get your essential oils going. So 
that is number coming in at number seven. He is totally woo woo. Okay. Um. Yeah. A strong start. He really is giving me a lot of like Miss Cleo vibes right now. Call this number right now for a psychic reading. Not super harmful, but also just not should not be on daytime TV and have the name Doctor in front of his name. So I think uh, I think that's number two. If you want to take this one, no, not number two. Number six. <laughs> number six. Uh, this one is really what kind of got it for me. I love this number six. He had to testify against his own claims about magical weight loss pills. This is fun because I always love it when there's a bit of a comeuppance. It's always good for any story, any narrative. And this was a bit of a comeuppance here. Dr. Oz had been hawking weight loss pills for years. I think some of the ones you mentioned, the raspberry ketones or whatever. Uh, And he said, these are direct quotes. He said, uh, it is the number one miracle in a bottle. It's a magical weight loss cure and a magical ingredient that lets you lose weight without diet or exercise. Anytime someone with the name doctor, someone with the prefix, excuse me, doctor, says magical and weight loss, that is a big red flag. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that caught the attention of some senators, something that he hopes to be one day, which is ironic, because he had to testify before the Senate Subcommittee on Consumer Protection in 2014. And when asked if there was a miracle pill out there that would lead to weight loss, Oz said, quote, The the word, if you're selling something because it's magical, no. There's not a pill that's going to help you long-term lose weight and live your best life without diet and exercise. I just, I I love a good 360 or 180. Yeah. I I love it when uh, people like this have to eat crow. And this is why I love number six. I think that testify. Can you imagine Chuck just being called to testify in front of the Senate about something that like this man was probably just like, yeah, whatever. I'll just read the script. And it's about it's like so, so much of just him hawking shit to people. And now he has to testify in front of the Senate. And it's just I can't imagine being in his shoes because that is just such a a hilarious sitcom position to be in. Yeah, I can't imagine myself in that position because I just would never do something so stupid. Also, I think actually Oz should have probably entered the X Games that year with that kind of, you know, flip. I think this next one I've I've really enjoyed because we're really starting to go into this guy has political ambitions. This was so these mm-hmm. things uh were over the years like in the I think the early to mid 2010s. We get yeah. into 2020. Uh, big year for doctors, if you'll recall, with the coronavirus. A big testing yeah. ground to see if you are um, a worthless piece of shit, doctor. Turns mm-hmm. out, I think Dr. Oz was. Would you care to explain number five? Oh, yes. So coming in at number five, Dr. Oz said that school children are appetizing. Who so- hasn't said that? Who hasn't? It's just a normal everyday thought. So speaking on Hannity in April of 2020 about reopening schools, he said, and I quote, schools are a very appetizing opportunity. I just saw a nice piece in The Lancet arguing the opening of schools may only cost us two to three percent in terms of total mortality. Two to three percent of our children are dying so, if we open reschools, and he is fine with that. Even cheerful, I would say. Yeah, I think this is interesting to me because, first of all, he's viewing it as appetizing, which is a weird, weird way to frame so it. So weird, and it's is like so weird. You know, if we only lose two to three kids out of every one hundred. We're doing great, guys. Look, 
that's not compelling messaging. No way. And it also <laughs> makes it sound like he's going to eat two to three kids. He's like, that's very appetizing, only two to three percent in terms of total mortality. So he's going to eat them. I think yeah, is what I'm, he's saying. I'm wondering if he if this goes along with his like very weird things on his show with like psychics and and these astrological signs and all of this he's like eating them for their life force yeah is what i would say and he's like he's basically an an evil wizard is this is what he thinks yeah is this the raspberry ketone is this his magical weight cannibalism is his magical weight loss solution you heard it here first folks uh yeah anyway it's kind of fucked i mean look i I don't want to. I'm not a doctor, but what I will say is, I would not go on Sean Hannity claiming that schools are appetizing and that we can, you know, we can afford to lose two to three percent of our kids if we open the schools. I just yeah, wouldn't do yeah. that. That's not me. Yeah, just you know. But I, I feel like it's a mistake anybody could make. And and sure. By the way, by the, <laughs> by the way, we've all been. There. Um, at the same time that he was saying this on Hannity, he was talking hydroxychloroquine. Sure, of so course. Like, of course, of course saying that we can sacrifice 2 to 3%, but also like the cure is this thing that actually is not a cure, but you can, you know, I I'm going to tell you all of this and it's okay to sacrifice your children to my pedo cannibalism. <laughs> if you recall, the lieutenant governor in Texas he during COVID said that it, that grandparents should sacrifice their lives for their grandchildren. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, this feels very, very much in line with that. Yeah, except it's like same energy. Yeah, the Texas lieutenant governor's response is a lot like the movie Midsummer, the one with Florence Pugh, where right. the people in that Swedish village when they turn seventy-five, they just jump off a cliff and slam themselves into a rock and die. Spoiler alert. Whereas Oz is kind of the opposite. He's echoing this line, you know, because he. All those Republicans are like, oh, we life is so precious in the womb. But then once they get out, you know, fucking eat them, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Who the fuck cares? It's yeah, wild. Right. OK. This is getting weird. Let's. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take us? Do you want to take us to number four? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we move off of pedo cannibalism, but we're going for it. It's a peak. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's going downhill, baby. Uh, number four, his artful dodging of living in Pennsylvania. I've genuinely enjoyed this one. Oh, this man. is so much fun, and I think the Fetterman campaign has too. So the whole shtick from the Fetterman campaign is that Oz does not live in Pennsylvania. It's not just that he's not from Pennsylvania. He doesn't live there, which is true. He only has, I think, one house there that he purchased, I think, yeah. in February 2022, so after he started his campaign, and he was using his in-laws address to register to vote in Pennsylvania so that he could qualify to run and be on the ballot. Yeah. So this dude lives in New Jersey. Like, he's well-documented. Yeah, just a stand-up guy. A, when asked on the campaign trail, you know, what's your response to people who say you're not from Pennsylvania, you don't live in Pennsylvania, and his response was like, well, I, people don't care about that, and by the way... My father settled us just south of Philadelphia, which, care to take a look at the map, is New Jersey. It's New Jersey, yeah. Philadelphia is on a river, <laughs> and it goes into New Jersey. I really think that he believes in what he's saying. Like, I oh, think for sure. None of this, none of this is like him being like, okay, I've got to come up with something. He's just like, people will believe me because I'm a trusted TV doctor. And so yeah. he's like, if I, whatever I say... It's going to it's going to come across well. And like, I cannot imagine being his staff 
with like all that he just like shoots off saying things like that and then having to just like clean up the mess. Oh, yeah. You are right. It really is a complete disaster. He just keeps stepping in it. And I, I believe you. I think he truly believes that he's killing it. And, and he just thinks that this will be fine, that people won't give a shit. Like, yeah, I'll just say south of Philadelphia. Some people will put that together. Some people won't care. Close enough. <laughs> and he thinks that's fine. I think it's hilarious, personally. It's like someone who's an Atlanta native running for governor of Tennessee saying that they were raised and grew up just south of Chattanooga. Right. <laughs> Don't think it flies for most people, but we'll see. And I also I also want to hit on this. I think this is also really funny that when he did buy a house in Pennsylvania, it was a multi-million dollar house. Very every man. It was sure. a very every man move. This guy bought a $3.1 million house in Montgomery County in February of 2022. Y'all, this man who is running for Senate has been living there for I don't even how long is that? What is that? Eight months? Just, and, and arguably, he, I, honestly, I would argue he probably doesn't even live there. He just bought it so he could say that he has a house there. He just bought it. Yeah, I think that's like yeah. what is? I think it's like Metro Philadelphia, right? Montgomery County, I believe so. It's just yeah. wild to me yeah. that they didn't really see this as as a problem or as maybe a blind spot or even a red flag. Him and his campaign are completely confident when it comes to running for Senate. I mean, because, you know, being from the state that you're trying to represent is kind of a big deal. It is. It's huge. It's like, I mean, arguably one of the biggest things to, to think about. <laughs> yeah, and not to fixate on this too much, but it does remind me of back in 2010, I think, when Joe Manchin was running in a special election for Senate in West Virginia. He ran against a guy, a perennial loser named John Racy. We like to call him John Lost the Racy. <laughs> and while he was technically a West Virginia resident, he spent a lot of time in Palm Beach, Florida, so much so that his wife couldn't even vote for him, because I believe she wasn't registered in West Virginia. I think she was registered in Florida, and he sent his kids to private school in Florida. It's just wild. Wild to me these people have that kind of audacity they think they can do those. That's amazing. I love it. That kind of stuff just like it's 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 the comedy of like Veep that I love. That's just like so like some politicians are just like so inherently contradictory of themselves that like you cannot help but think that it is satire. It is so ridiculous. So number three, I think it, it, it comes really flows really well from from number four is that this guy, Dr. Oz, actually lied to voters about how many houses he owns, which is no. just a really, really funny sentence. Um, he claimed to own two houses legitimately. And I say that with air quotes. Um, turns out he actually owns 10. <laughs> just a cool 10. That's a super sketchy way of describing that too like legitimately how many houses do you own illegitimately then right yeah so when he was called out about it oz said that he purchased them with his own money and that he only owns two homes the other eight are properties so this is like a little bit i guess going into his his thought process but to me that's like not a very good like it doesn't make sense just because it's a property that you don't live in or maybe you rent it out, it still means that it's yours. Okay, Kelly. he says he owns two legitimately. We found 10 properties. You're going to list them out because I'm going to do a little bit of a fact check at the end. All right. Number one, the New Jersey mansion. That is his primary residence. All right, of course. Yes, the OG. <laughs> um, number two, 
Palm, Ble- Palm Beach, Florida mansion, another mansion. Yeah, of course. I think it's a requirement for a Republican running for Senate to have a house in Palm Beach. I'm pretty sure. Of course. Number three, Cumberland, Maine. Beautiful this time of year. Four, he has two houses in Turkey. Yeah. Who doesn't? Um, he has uh, one in Arthurstown, Ireland. He has... And that is a mansion. Yeah, it's huge. Enormous house. Um, two New York City condos. So here we are at eight. Um, a plot of land in Okeechobee, Florida. And he has... Number 10 is his brand new Huntington, Pennsylvania home. That's what good. I will say is that I think the plot of land still technically doesn't have a house on it. So... Survey says, for me, I think uh, my fact check is nine. Nine. Yeah, just a, just a regular old middle class bro. Yeah, I just think it's so funny that he was asked by a voter or somebody how many houses he owned, and he was like, oh, just two. The other eight are properties. They'll get that. They'll understand that. Like, right. that was... Yeah. Wait, what planet is this dude living on? I hate this guy so much. This man... Well, we're about to get into something that I think is maybe one of the funniest ones. We're down to number two, the crudité video. Oh, boy. Would you like to walk us through the crudité video, or would you like me to? Uh, I can do it. I'm happy to. So first of all, this went viral recently within the past week or so, but this actually was, I think, from back in April. Okay, so the video shows Dr. Oz walking through a grocery store, something he is clearly not comfortable doing, judging by the video, because it's evident he doesn't do it very often. This is clearly his attempt to empathize with the regular person, I guess, struggling with high grocery prices. And so here we go. He's walking through the produce section of what we later found out was a Redner's, which I'm not personally familiar with, but I'm told it's a grocery store chain in PA. Uh, walking through Redner's, calls it Wegner's, which I think he's conflating Redner's with Wegman's, yeah. which is funny, Great. hilarious. You don't even have to go to grocery stores very often to not fuck up the name, but whatever. And so he's informing the viewer that he is shopping for things to make his wife crudite, which I'm sure is something that all working class Pennsylvanians find themselves doing quite often at the grocery store, shopping for crudite. I will be completely honest with you, Chuck. I had to Google what crudite was. I had Same. no idea. Same. I knew, had to Google it. Though. And I feel like I'm a pretty like I'm a pretty cultured person. Like I feel like I have a broad understanding of the world and I can fit in in fancy rooms. I've been a lobbyist for goodness sake. I had no idea what crudite was. I'm with you. I had to Google it too. Turns out when I Googled it, it it's essentially looks like a fancy veggie tray, at least to me. Okay. Veggie tray. Yeah. Seems like a fucking insane veggie tray that he picked up then yeah well i mean the not out of touch millionaire thing to do would have been to just call it a veggie tray but he's an out of touch millionaire so i guess it checks out um of course so anyway he's walking through this produce section somebody is filming him it's got to be super uncomfortable for the people that are actually shopping who just want to get some fucking groceries but he's walking through bare handing some veggies he picks up a head of broccoli and he says here's a broccoli that's two bucks a broccoli like just a hand (laughs) well and i don't think i've ever in my life purchased a broccoli yeah that's true what is one broccoli i don't know i don't either i have no idea (laughs) guys i need a i got a broccoli here for you are you ready yeah his wife is like one broccoli please yeah please yes one crack please uh (laughs) 
So he's walking around grabbing more groceries. He picks up some asparagus. He gets an entire like Bugs Bunny-sized bag of, of whole-ass carrots. He grabs some guac, grabs some salsa, does some fast math, and says, guys, that's $20 for crudite. That doesn't even include the tequila, which a, a Twitter account associated for John Fetterman's dogs rightly pointed out that you cannot buy liquor in Pennsylvania grocery stores, but you can in New Jersey. So he clearly got <laughs> confused. Um, and then you know, the cherry on top is, and this is really funny, he wasn't even using a cart when he's collecting all this shit. So he's just his arms are completely full because he's got a broccoli, he's got asparagus, a a giant bag of carrots, too much fucking carrots for a veggie plate. Yeah, like like probably two and a half pounds of it's carrots. It's like five Bugs Bunnies worth of carrots. Yeah, it's wild. No cart, no bag, nothing. This man is raw dogging these vegetables with his arms. <laughs> oh, he probably would. He's probably supported raw dogging a lot of things mm-hmm. as a quack doctor. A lot of times, politicians get caught in like blunders, right? Like the unintentional gaffes that aren't planned. This was planned, and then they put it out themselves because they thought this will yeah. be good. This really will connect with people. Yeah, this was so okay. I I understand these kind of gaffes and things when you're maybe live. This was something that they could have filmed again. <laughs> Like this was this yeah. was not like an Instagram live. It wasn't a Facebook live. It wasn't a town hall. It wasn't anything like that. It was not a campaign stop. This guy, they were just no. at the grocery store and they were like, let's just film something real quick. Inflation, inflation. And they did it. And he was like, okay, great. Best stuff I've ever seen. Instead of saying, maybe we should try this again. So they, I mean, that just tells you, they all looked at it and they're like, yeah, this hits. Let's do it. You know, it's really sad. Uh, and our number one, though, is uh, is in line with the crudite video. It is his explanation for it, and I think you should take it away because, again, this guy's got a weird thing about children. I guess he's got a, he's very disconnected from them, clearly. Yes, yes. So now coming in at number one is Dr. Oz's explanation of the crudite video, now infamous. He said that... Uh, he said and this was on Newsmax. Yes. Yeah. Um, so his ex- explanation was just like almost as bad as the video itself. So he said, yeah, I was exhausted <laughs> when you're campaigning 18 hours a day. You've, listen, I've gotten my kids names wrong as well. I don't think that's uh, a measure of someone's ability to lead the Commonwealth. I have a lot of <laughs> thoughts. about this. First of all, first of all, this is a, a puff interview. All right. Like Newsmax. Newsmax oh, yeah. is where people go if they think Fox News is too liberal. Yeah. They were doing him a solid, too, in yeah. talking about the fucking crudite video on it's, their on their television show. It's like taking the spoon and putting it up to the baby's mouth and just having them eat. That's yeah. all you got to do is open your mouth literally in yeah. this situation. But still. He fucks it up. I, look, I am the most forgetful person in the world. I can attest that. My wife can too. I still manage to remember my dog's names, and I've given my dog upwards of 10 names, and it's a fucking dog, not a child that I have created. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Like, I don't know. This this whole endeavor is like such a... It, it, we. I feel like we've gotten a look into really what makes Dr. Oz tick, and that is Dr. Oz. And I think that, of course, he doesn't remember his kids' names. Of course, he's not actually getting his wife anything useful for the crudite. Like, no. we, we should just, like, think about that. This poor woman got... A, a fistful of, of <laughs> broccoli, some asparagus and salsa. And she was like, honey, 
I sent you to the store for something totally different. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I was filming a video. I got it at Wagner's. Right. So him then going on and saying like a more insult to injury to his family, saying, I forget my kids' names all the time. Fuck my children. It's just to me, it's it's such a th- this whole thing has showed me that Dr. Oz is about one person and that is Dr. Oz. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think to, to round off that one, though, I it, this is evidence to me this dude is a sociopath because, I mean, he's looking at this situation like people are really going to appreciate the fact that I'm working so hard on this campaign that I forgot my own children's names. <laughs> and people get roasted for forgetting their spouse's anniversaries and maybe forgetting their kids' birthdays, but their names? God. It really is. So so Dr. Oz, um, not our favorite guy. Not our favorite at all. But that'll do it for our top seven in our campaign check-in. Again, don't sleep on this race. Dr. Oz is running like an incompetent candidate, but he still could very much win. So if you're in Pennsylvania, vote for John Fetterman. Before we get to our interview, though, we do have some announcements about our Patreon, the platform that we use that's crowdfunded to help fund this show. Uh, It's great. You should check it out. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and get access to exclusives and other awesome bonuses. Patreon.com slash iPodLatcha. You also find a link in the notes. We do limericks for all of our new members. And while we don't have any new members this week, we have some retroactive limericks for some of our longtime members. Callie joined this show. She's been cranking out these limericks, and they're amazing. Callie, uh, we have ones for Sarah and Jimmy. I love that we're doing this. Um, I appreciate all of our Patreon members, and this helps me to get to know you a little bit better. So number one is Sarah. I'm here to tell y'all about Sarah. I hope you've got on waterproof mascara. She's smart and delightful, and she's never, ever spiteful. And we're so hyped to start this new era. Woo! Sarah without an H. Without an H. Jimmy, all right. Hold up. It's time to toast Jimmy. If you hear me right now, do a shimmy. This man is no cricket, and indeed he's no bigot. So give him snaps like JV and Henny. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. That was perfect. Little, little Queer Eye reference in there. Also, fun fact, Sarah and Jimmy are married. Oh, nice. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And thank you, Callie, for those wonderful limericks. If you want a custom limerick as well as some other awesome benefits and bonuses, and if you want to support this show and help us grow even more, you can check us out, patreon.com slash iPodLatcha. Now, Callie, that, uh, that last segment was, was pretty stressful going through all that Oz stuff. It stressed me out to think that he might be a senator one day. And when I'm stressed out, I like to take the edge off with some Cornbread Hemp CBD. Yes, they're one of our sponsors, and they're a great company. Cornbread Hemp is based out of Louisville, Kentucky. They're flower-only, full-spectrum CBD. Uh, one of the things that I really love about them, they've got a number of different products. They're all crowdfunded, no corporate cash. And uh, their gummies are some of my favorite. They contain up to 2 milligrams of Delta 9. 9-THC, the most allowed by federal law. If you don't know what THC is, Google it. It is legal to ship to all 50 states and U.S. territories, but enough about what I'm saying. Callie, you, you've had a lot of really positive personal experiences with this, and I'd love for the listeners to hear a little bit about them. Yeah, I uh, really, really really believe in this product. Um, and I think that the reason that we have such a great c- partnership with Cornbread is because they make great stuff. So for me, I use this um, at the end of the day most of the time when I have had a busy day um, or if I've been feeling a lot of a lot of pain. Uh, most of you all know now that I live with a disability and a chronic illness. And these gummies 
help me to be able to relax faster, to be able to sleep better. I really love them. I use them all the time. Um, and I think that if you are looking for solutions um, to, you know, maybe maybe you also have a racing brain at the end of the day. This this really can help. And so um, I love them. I use them. I've recommended them to my friends. I have recommended them to my family. This is not just something we do on the show. I really think that they're awesome. So if you would like to try them, use our code APODLACHA at checkout for 25% off of your order, which is an insane deal. So if you haven't, uh, taken advantage of it, you should definitely do that now. Um, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A. <laughs> Sorry, y'all, but please uh, go ahead and try them out. Uh, you won't regret it. No, you won't. Try them out and support Cornbread Hemp, a great company based out of Kentucky. And when you support them, you support us as well. Uh, with that being said, let's get into our interview today. It's a great one. We have Melissa Cropper on. She is the president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, which represents 20,000 members and 55 locals across the state, including public school educators, support staff, higher education, faculty, and support, and public employees. And uh, so she's great. We talked about some of the really harmful legislation that was passed into law in Ohio that goes after teachers and, quite frankly, students. We talked about that. I think the attacks on public education in general and the state of teaching, and I think we do call it a crisis in the interview, the teaching crisis in Ohio and Appalachian throughout the country. Yeah, I actually, I think that that's maybe um, the most uh, the most shocking thing to come out of this, we we really we asked if it was time to call it a crisis, the the shortage of teachers, and she was very straightforward with us about how the not only teachers at an individual level but the teaching profession is really struggling right now. Um, she was very straightforward with us. I thought that the interview was um, was really enlightening. We talked about you know, arming teachers. Um, we talked about the new law in Tennessee that requires teachers to catalog books. And if that, if she thought that that was going to go wide. Um, and so all of this kind of gives us, I think, a good picture of just how dire the situation is for teachers in our country right now, especially in our region. And um, I think that you all will find it really helpful to have that inside look. Um, one of the things, though, that I think we should all remember and one of the things she said that she wanted folks to take away from this is just how um, at an individual level parents report that they like their teachers and so changing the narrative around teaching and around the parent relationship with teachers is something that she talked about as well that I thought was really valuable yeah absolutely I completely agree and I think you guys will enjoy it too so let's get in our interview with Melissa Well, uh, welcome to the show, Melissa. We're so excited to have you. Um, we've been wanting to have AFT in some way on the show for a while, and I, I'm really excited that this is Ohio AFT. Um, and so I, I would love for you to just kind of, let's open with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to AFT and to labor organizing? Oh, sure. Great. 
Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm Melissa Cropper. Um, I'm actually from Brown County, Ohio, a small town called Georgetown in Brown County, Ohio, which is down almost on the Ohio River. It's about an hour east of Cincinnati. Um, my background is I was, I was actually a stay-at-home mom for 10 years. I have five children who are about eight and a half years apart. And I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years and then decided that, you know, we, we needed another income basically, but I got fortunate that our school librarian was retiring and I have always loved books and, and love being in a library. And, and I, and I work out a deal with the school that if I would go back and get my certification to work in the library, I was already a certified teacher, but if I would get my certification to work in a library, then they would hire me part-time until I actually got that degree. So went back, got that degree and became our school librarian and was our school librarian for about 14 years before I came here. Um, now, during that process, you know, when you work in the media center, as we call it, you're pretty much the hub of the school. That's where everyone's in and out of there all day long. And so I would you know, hear people, hear teachers in particular, complaining about different issues. And that's really what I kind of got started in being interested in union work. It's like, how do we, you know, how do we combine our voices together to address these issues? And it really kind of hit me hard one day when we had a staff meeting and our principal, we were talking about test scores, which my, shift, my, my thoughts have changed a lot about test scores over the years, but basically our principal made a comment about how can we expect our students to do as well as students, and she mentioned some rich districts. We just can't expect the same of our students. And it, and it just really hit me hard because my five children were those students and their friends were those students. Uh, how could we have lower expectations for our students? And I knew that our teachers had ideals for how we should be doing things differently, but there just wasn't an avenue to raise those voices. So we used, used the union as a way to start combining our voices and addressing policy issues. So for me, getting into union work is more about policy issues than it was about the typical bread and butter type issues that you hear about. And then from there, I just got connected at a, a state level. Our state president pulled me into an organizing drive and I just really got connected to union work and, and wanted to get more and more engaged and started attending more and more state level union functions until the opportunity came to actually run for president. So I'm currently president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. I'm also secretary treasurer at the Ohio AFL-CIO and an AFT vice president. So I'm connected in about as much as I could be connected. I, in. I, lo I love that. I love that you uh, were a stay at home mom. My mom was a stay at home mom for, I think, 14 or 15 years until we also needed a second income because my dad's union went on strike for a prolonged period of time. Uh, and she actually was a member of AFT because she worked in the education system along with my sister, who is currently a teacher and member of AFT in West Virginia. So um, good to have all those connections. I love that. Um, so I think one of the, we can just jump right into it. One of the most alarming things we've seen uh, in Ohio and I think across the country is a renewed movement to arm teachers. After, often I think this comes up in the context of school shootings. I know that in the past we've heard rumblings about this, but this more recent legislative session, a lot of substantive action was taken on this, and Ohio recently passed a law to this effect with arming teachers. I'm wondering if you can talk about this and what it means for teachers and also what it means for students in Ohio. Sure. So just to clarify, the, there was already a law on the books that allowed for teachers to be armed, mm -hmm. but there was a court case because there was a district who was trying to say that 
the amount of training that was required, which was over 700 hours of training, only applied to people who were hired to be security officers. Therefore, teachers didn't need training. You could just arm the teachers. And, and, that, um, and they lost that case at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, teachers have to have the same amount of training. So the legislature went back and changed the law so that teachers only need a minimal amount of training to carry guns in schools, not minimal about being 24 hours, and most of that online. So of course that is extremely alarming to us. Uh, I, first of all, we don't believe that any amount of training is sufficient. Teachers should not be armed in schools. That should not be part of their responsibilities is to take on that security measure within schools. If schools feel like they need security, they should pay for security. And beyond that, you know, they should, they should pay for fully trained security and not go on the cheap because now we're offering the opportunity to say, Instead of paying for a school resource officer, we'll just have one of our teachers do it. We only have to give 24 hours of training. We don't have to pay them any extra because it has to be voluntary. Um, and therefore we could go on the cheap. So, I mean, obviously this is alarming for a lot of reasons um, and particularly for our students because with such little training, it allows for so many unintended consequences to happen. So many bad things that could happen um, at the risk, and, and taking that risk that all those bad things could happen just to prevent a, a really horrible thing from happening. Yeah, it's it's honestly really terrifying to think about. I mean, just the concept of introducing like, you know, 30 firearms into a school, one into each individual classroom ups the danger level in my mind substantially. And I think I'm pretty sure every teacher that is listening to this and, and, and many parents realize that teachers already have so much on their plates are being asked more way more than what their job requires of them and so putting this on their plate is just an absolutely ridiculous thing in my opinion um and it doesn't really solve the problem exactly and i think that's the key thing that we have to point out is it's creating this false sense of security we basically the governor and the legislature wrote themselves a pass in my opinion because they're saying okay we know there's a problem with school safety, so we'll allow you to arm teachers instead of saying, you can't carry an AR-15 in this state. Okay, that's what the problem is, that people are allowed to carry AR-15s and that Ohio at the same time also passed permitless carry in this state. So you don't even have to have a permit to carry a gun. Anybody can carry a gun. Anybody can carry an AR-15. And as our backup, we're going to say, or not as a backup, as our front line of defense, we're going to say, well, to keep our students safe, we'll let our teachers carry guns. I mean, it's all a bunch of BS. It's just asinine and, and illogical. I just, I can't even, I can't even imagine like the trauma of students either, like coming to your classroom and seeing, uh, you know, teachers with, with assault rifles and just as a normal part of your life, it's horrible. I, I'm kind of curious, this this is a trend like with arming teachers. Yes. But just in general, there is this trend of animosity towards public education and public education teachers, public educators. Where do you think that stems from? I, I know that's probably a, a large, broad question, but I would just be interested in your take on that. Oh, it's a political divide. It's the, it's the extreme right wing trying to create some kind of division. So um, you've got, right-wing conservatives who want school choice, who are all pro-charter, pro-voucher, and, and, and 
also at the same time wants to destroy teachers unions and most teachers in Ohio are in some kind of are in a teachers union, right? So the way you accomplish those goals to put more money into private school education and destroy a union is to make parents distrust their school. So create this division, throw up these cultural issues and use them to divide uh, from parents from their, from their teachers and start that process of creating this distrust in schools. It's, uh, it's really, really terrible. And it's just, it, again, I go back to this this issue of we, there, <laughs> I know we're gonna get into this question later, but there's just like, what incentive is there to be a teacher anymore? It's it's basically not. I, I think um, the incentive though is that, I mean, we what we have to do is, and what we have to encourage our teachers to do is to try to drown out that cultural message that they're putting out there and look at what's actually what the reality is, which is that most parents still love their school teacher. So instead of worrying about the overall picture, what's the overall message around teachers focusing on what is the relationship that you have with the parents in your school? And overwhelmingly, survey after survey after survey shows that 90% of parents love their teacher. That's a really stunning statistic. Like I I I really love that because for me, I, I would have never guessed that. I would have never guessed that 90% of parents say they love the teacher that is teaching their kids. Um, that's really important for us to know and to, uh, I, I don't know, to like get out there in the ether, like get it out there that, that so much of this is, is hyped up. Um, but I do, this leads me to, to something that's really been bothering me. Um, and, and that is like this hostility toward certain books or, it's even literacy itself, uh, when it comes to being literate, uh, as far as like knowing what families can look like and, and knowing what, uh, what the breadth and depth of literature is out there for children and for teenagers. And so specifically I'm thinking of Tennessee, um, where there's new laws requiring teachers to catalog their books that are in their classrooms. They're not the library books. This is like literally the books in your classroom. Um, and then you have to get them approved by the administration. So the administration has a list of books that they're taking off of shelves. And so they take off of those books and then you get to make that that catalog public to the parents so that parents can make suggestions or can say that they're not comfortable with books. And I'm seeing this, this is kind of pervasive. It's, it's going other places. And so what's your reaction to this law? And can we expect to see this in other states? How do we fight against this? Well, I mean, as a, as a school librarian, I find it extremely offensive. It was always important to me as a librarian that we had books in our library that children, students could relate to. And I could tell you story after story of students and or parents who came to me at some point in time and said, thank you so much for, for this book. Because of this book, my child who never loved to read, reads now. And at the end of the day, that's, you know, if our goal is for students to read first and for students to, to learn from their reading experience, then we need to have books that they actually want to read. All the testing and skill driving and everything else is not gonna get students to read. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 these kind of laws bother me extremely because it's denying students both that opportunity to enjoy a reading experience, but also to learn about themselves 
and to learn about others and the people that they deal with in the world. And that is, you know, and especially, you know, in, in places like where we're from, where there's not always a lot of diversity in the communities that we live in, um, it's important that we have that type of exposure through literature to start gaining that understanding for the broader world, but also for those diverse people who might actually live in our communities and who are a very, very, very small minority in those communities. So to answer another part of your question, I think, yes, I think we can expect to see more of this. I, I think that we will see more of this, especially as we're going into an election cycle season. I think this is a way that the right wing is trying to divide us. And I think it's going to be really important because I think we are in the majority on how we feel on this issue. It's going to be really, really important for the majority of people to speak out and fight back and to say, we're standing up for our children and we're standing up for their right to read and to learn about the world. Yeah, that to me is is one of the most impactful things that I learned from school. You know, my, my, I saw my mom reading all of the time, but I did have teachers who steered me to books that maybe my mom would, didn't know, you know? And um, I, I think a lot of kids have that experience, especially where I grew up. There were lots of, um, there were lot there were lots of parents who did like religious reading. Um, so they read the Bible, they did devotionals, they did a lot of reading, but they weren't necessarily exposed or interested in um, reading novels and fiction and things like that which I absolutely love reading novels. And I think that um, I definitely got that. It came by it, came by it honest, but I think that teachers really helped push me in the right direction. Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. That was a book that like really, really changed my perspective. I grew up next to uh, the Cherokee reservation. And so like reading what had happened was so impactful. And so I think that that you're totally right in that people have to start People who are for our teachers and supportive of our teachers have to start showing up to to school board meetings um, so that they can have that supportive arm. Um, I know that, that that's really difficult for a lot of people, though, is is stepping out there and putting something so central to their being as their children out on display for maybe their communities and, and their parenting style. It's difficult to, to be criticized for your parenting style. I know that that's like a big issue in mothering and, and parenting communities is that even other parents are judgmental. And what would your advice be to a mom who maybe wants to speak out or wants to support her teachers, maybe wants to go to these meetings, but doesn't really know how to start um, what would your advice be to a, a parent like that? Right. Well, first of all, uh, talk with the teacher and, and and show your support for that teacher, even if, if it's even if it's um, behind closed doors to start with. You know, show that support and have that conversation. It could be that 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 other parents have talked to that teacher too, and that's the way that you can find other people who are supportive of the issue, and you can start connecting with each other in that way. Uh, I think there are a lot of groups online right now that can offer support too. There's a fantastic group called Red Wine and Blue that um, actually has taken on this challenge of book banning and does some trainings on how to do this work. So I think that they can help people get to this comfort level of what are the steps you can take to, to start to stand up and, and protect your rights and to stand up and, and protect the rights of your students. And again, can be that, um, that, that support group for you in doing that stuff. But again, sometimes we think that there's not other support out there. We think we're the only ones who feel that way. But as we start talking about things, 
we find out that other people will actually support us also and feel the same way. And they're afraid to step out too. Yeah. Always knowing you've got, you've got an, if you're thinking it, it's very likely somebody else out there is thinking it. And, um, I, I think that that's, that's one of my mantras for politics too. <laughs> um, so I, 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 Chuck mentioned it earlier. I want to get into it. Um, because I think that this is what I primarily have been seeing in the news other than like all of the bad things. This is like the worst thing. Um, seems like every day there's a new headline somewhere in the country about a teacher shortage. Um, um, and, and that they're just as there are packed classrooms and not enough people who have the qualifications. How is AFT looking at this issue and is it time to call it a crisis? Um, I definitely think it's time to call it a crisis because we see this trend happening and we don't want it to get so far down the road that we can't we can't turn it around and correct it. So I think we need to call it a crisis now and get ahead of it and figure out how we're gonna deal with it. Now, AFT put together a task force this past year and just released their study at our convention in July about the teacher shortage. It's called Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. And it really digs into what the problems are, but it also goes into detail about what do we need to see happen at all these different levels? What needs to happen at a federal level, at a state level, at a district level, and even at a union level to address some of these issues. And this is really critical at this point in time because we see states who, instead of looking at how do we, uh, how do we improve the profession? How do we make sure that we have high quality professionals in the classroom, they're taking the other route and saying, how do we actually loosen the requirements of who can be a teacher and allow almost anybody in the classroom? That's when we will truly have a crisis is when we're not respecting the fact that, that it takes, it takes well-educated, trained people to educate students. And it's not something that just anybody can step into the classroom and do. Yeah, the that is so important. I think that everybody uh everybody can kind of forget that that it takes really specialized skill to be um a certain teacher uh, for a certain grade and um even you know coaching I think people think is much easier than it actually <laughs> actually turns out to be. Um, so I, I really, I appreciate that. So how are you working to, to make sure that young people, um, want to go into teaching with it being so fraught right now? Right. Well, we're looking at putting some career pathways in some of our schools to actually identify students who, who we see that potential in to be teachers and to start giving them some exposure to what teaching is like. So whether it's you know, giving them the opportunity to work in a classroom while they're still in school, um, mentoring with another teacher, hooking up with another teacher to understand the profession, trying to put some of those pathways in place within our schools. Um, I, but I will, you know, I will tell you right now, it is, it is difficult simply because our teachers are so overwhelmed and frustrated that Quite honestly, a lot of them are not recommending that students go into teaching. So again, part of our part of our process in getting new people into the profession is working on the conditions that are there now and making them more appealing to people so that they will want to come and be a teacher. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think it's really smart uh, because again, like there's 
there's all the disincentives in the world, it seems like right now, to enter the education profession. You know, low pay, lack of respect, constant oversight by the government, and especially in, in states with more Republicans in the legislatures. So I think it's I think it's good to be trying to identify those people who it is their passion to actually put them on a pathway and also to be advocating for making it a better profession. And so um, I really appreciate that. Um, Callie, do you have any final questions? Yeah, I, I think my last one would just be, what what keeps you motivated and hopeful? Oh, what keeps me motivated is just seeing the success stories that we have with, with what both with what our teachers are doing in a classroom and what all our members, because we don't represent just teachers, but what our, all our members are are doing, the, the successes they're getting in their bargaining, um, you know, what they're doing to make their workplaces better, what they're willing to do to create better conditions out there in the workplace so that the people that we serve can, can benefit from that. You know, we've been doing a lot of organizing lately. We just had a big organizing win yesterday, actually, or Monday of this week, actually. We um, organized Equitas, which is a, basically social workers for the LGBTQ community across Ohio. And so again, it, it inspires me to come into work every day when we see that people are willing to bring together their collective power and make a change. It's always a good thing to highlight, and I think it's a perfect thing to end on. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today and, and talking to us about some of the things we're seeing in Ohio, because I think it's very much indicative of what we're going to be seeing in other Appalachian states and just across the country in general. So I really appreciate you taking the time and really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I did too. It was a pleasure. Thank you. There might be some days that I don't feel. Maybe some days I don't feel All right, that was our interview with Melissa Cropper. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that she came on the show. We want to wrap this episode up with, with some juicy bits from under the radar in Appalachia about none other than J.D. Vance, John Damon Vance, and his sham nonprofit, which we got some new intel on today. Uh, Callie, do you want to give us the background of this nonprofit before we get into the new news about it? And it's it's very bad news, honestly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So after moving back to Ohio in 2017, um, Vance founded uh, a, a nonprofit called Our Ohio Renewal. Um, it was dedicated, supposedly, to fighting the opioid e epidemic. That was what he kind of marketed this as. Um, in its first year, according to Business Insider and his leaked oppo, um, he, uh, the, the nonprofit brought in a little over $200,000. Um, and the principal officer of this nonprofit earned uh, more in management fees than the company spent on programming, which totaled about $50,000. The guy earned about $63,000. So they're, this is clearly like not the, the charity that one would hope for. Um, and so, yes, the, the background on it um, is that it, it, the only accomplishments that it really has um, are the $45,000 that it spent for a survey of the social, cultural, and general welfare, welfare needs of Ohio citizens, along with their travel and meeting expenses. Um, actually, Vance told Columbus Monthly that the nonprofit sponsored a year-long residency for Sally Satella, a psychiatrist and fellow re a research fellow at the Conservative American Enterprise Institute who treated patients at a methadone clinic in an underserved area of Southern Ohio. So out of all that he did, 
in all of this money, he paid people more than he actually spent on programming. And we are seeing that it didn't really um, like pan out in the way that it wanted. So, Chuck, this is this is where it gets bad. Well, before you do that, I think it's important to point out that the chief program officer you mentioned that got paid $63,000 is a former senior advisor, John Kasich, and is the current senior political advisor on his Senate campaign. So yeah. he was enriching paying somebody. His pals. Yeah, he's paying his pals. He's enriching somebody uh, that was on his political team, which, you know, is, I would like to say, not normal. It's unfortunately very normal in politics, but it's just really shady, especially for a nonprofit sleazy, that's supposed yeah. to be solving the opioid crisis. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty sleazy. It's pretty sleazy. But of course, JD Vance didn't stop there. Well, no, I mean, once once you get the grift started, it's kind of like a big old boulder of gravy that's rolling down a hill of bullshit. You just keep going and going and going, and it's a lot of fun for the people that are doing it, and that's JD. So this came out, uh, in fact, uh, I think last week, where the Associated Press reviewed that most notable accomplishment, which was hiring that, that uh, um, psychiatrist, I guess, is a psychiatrist? Yeah, I guess so. That psychiatrist from from AEI to go down and do whatever the hell, like I guess observe a methadone clinic. Uh, and turns out that person, shady to say the least. So they were tainted by their ties to the Purdue Pharma Company, which as you will recall is a manufacturer or former manufacturer of Oxycontin. I think they're bankrupt now. Excuse me, Sally Sattel wrote, Articles questioning the role of prescription painkillers in the national opioid crisis. And those articles weren't just some things that were in trade publications. They were thrown into the New York Times and many other notable publications. And so she wrote these articles basically saying, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know about this Oxycontin stuff. I don't know if it's it's really causing this crisis. Uh, And it turns out that the good people at ProPublica, which is a great, great newsroom, in 2019, they found uh, that Sattel sometimes cited Purdue-funded studies and doctors in her articles about addiction and about these like things about the crisis. So, these and then, again, this was shared in major news outlets, and she even shared drafts of the pieces with Purdue officials before it was going to publish, so they could have a look at it, make sure that you know it was up to snuff for them. This is very shady to begin with. First of all, before anything else you have this person who is a proclaimed doctor who is working i guess for vance's nonprofit, working air quotes going into appalachian ohio as a residency fellow there at a methadone clinic trying to quote unquote solve the opioid crisis and she's writing these articles where she's running them by purdue pharma to make sure that they're okay with it and purdue pharma is the one that's fucking causing this shit and she's running these articles saying that it doesn't. That right there is bad. And that's not even all of it. It's not. And I, I, this really hits me hard because they only list two major accomplishments. And one of them is this residency. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Like it's big accomplishment, guys. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it's, I feel like JD Vance continually backhands the people of Ohio with all of this bullshit that he does and he is such a snake and this to me is just like yet another example of how he's using this as like a proof point of him being some great guy that he was like oh yes I sponsored this but really like 
Not only was his law firm at the time working for Purdue Pharma, but he's now sponsoring somebody who's a doctor perpetuating these absolute bullshit numbers. It's just so frustrating and so painful because I feel like time and again, he's getting away with really truly contributing to the pain and suffering of Ohioans. Yeah, it's, you know, and I think like when you look at this, if you don't actually dig beneath the surface and you're just researching J.D. Vance, you'll see, oh, he had a nonprofit that was targeted, that was, was trying to combat the opioid crisis. Wow, what a great guy. And and, and that's kind of the purpose of why this was set right. up, so people will think he was show. actually doing something. Yeah, it was all, it's a fucking, it's a sham. And it come to find out that in this AP report, this is like, like kind of the big doozy here, is that over the years, AEI, the employer of Dr. Sally Sattel, regularly received $50,000 donations and other financial support from Purdue Pharma, totaling $800,000. That's a lot of fucking money. That's a lot of money. And boy, they, uh, they got a little bit of a return on their investment there, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's definitely a quid pro quid. Well, sorry, it's definitely a quid pro quo. Oh yeah, I mean, this is again. I think like I want to be surprised about this. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not surprised. I want to be. I'm not though. But it's just yeah. another example of where this guy doesn't care about the people of Ohio, especially in Appalachian, yeah. Ohio, and only cares about promoting himself, his own brand, and his own fucking ego because he's got some weird chip on his shoulder. And this is just yeah. like, it, it gets to a point where it's past the grift into just being dangerous. Yeah. I, I, I totally, totally agree with you. He's reaching a level now um, that I think is it's like scary because at first I think when when two years ago when he, we heard, heard the rumblings of J.D. Vance running for office like that felt really we it felt bad. But now that he's actually there, it's it's not just this like us being mad about hillbilly elegy thing anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that we're maybe stuck on that. But at this point, this is like a, a crisis because this man is is very, very close to his Senate seat. It's gonna, it's very likely that he ends up in that Senate seat. And this is the kind of person we have, we have the receipts on what kind of person this guy is. And it's not somebody who's going to fight for Ohioans. And that is really, really sad and really scary. Yeah. It's somebody that's going to fight for himself and whatever in his best interest. And, you know, probably be real easy on Big Pharma, which too many people, Democrats and Republicans, have been in the Senate and in Congress way too easy on Big Pharma. And that's how they've been able to do the things they've done quite honestly yeah and this this whole like giving a pass to aei and all this stuff because of this is unacceptable and so that's why again we'll say this all the time jd vance is a a favorite to win this race i know you see polls out there that show you otherwise do not believe them he's a favorite to win this you need to get out and vote for tim ryan you need to get out and bring people with you if you live in ohio and let them know about yeah. this this story in particular this is a damning story it really is. It really is. And I, I think that, you know, there's so many proof points, so many, and you can choose from a bunch of them. And this one, I think, really is, it's so, it's such a character verifier, in my opinion, that like, if you are willing to do things like this, 
then then what else then what else are you going to be willing to do oh yeah he's already proven that he's flip-flopped on issues that he has he's he's willing to sell his opinion to the highest bidder um and that's not somebody who is fit to serve in in such an office as the senate no no and even if he doesn't get elected which would be a huge win for 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 you know team Appalachia he's still going to have a platform and people are still going to like be viewing him as an authority and we have to do everything to prevent that but yeah he's pretty young he'll probably run again just to be honest with everybody if he loses he's probably going to run again yeah he ain't going anywhere uh but with that being said we do have to go somewhere and it's leaving your ears right now thank you all so much for listening uh we appreciate you make sure you follow us on all the social medians check out our patreon check out our t public store we've got new merch coming very soon and we've got some on there already, so check it out. Uh, leave rate review on Apple, Spotify, all the other places. And um, tell your friends. Share this episode, this show with them, and let us know. Or let them know, rather. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. Applied Latch is a production of both Chuck Cora and Callie Pruitt. None of the views expressed on this show are a reflection of the views of either Chuck or Callie's employers, and they never will be.